about a three-hour drive from Lancaster is a small town of 5,000 people called Berlin. It's located in Maryland. In 1856, a boy was born on a small farm outside of Berlin. His name was Charles Tindley. Early on, he was, he was hired out to farmers to do chores at local farms. And though the Emancipation Proclamation had freed slaves in 1863, Charles still experienced the harsh ways of his employers. He wasn't allowed to go to school or to go gather in a church gathering worship service. Somehow, at a young age, he obtained a copy of the Bible and he read it as best he could. Although, as he read it, there were words and phrases that he simply could not understand. He met a girl. They married. They moved to Philadelphia, where he became a church sexton, a custodian for that Methodist church. It was there where he heard and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was converted. He would pursue training and become a preacher, and then he would preach. He pastored for many years in Wilmington, Delaware. He often returned to the city of Philadelphia at Christmas time, where he had friends and contacts, and he would preach a Christmas sermon around Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It's been reported that each year many people trusted Christ after hearing Charles, Charles Tinley's Christmas sermon. There were times in his life that Mr. Tinley wondered about his eternal security, even doubting God's purpose for him and God's promise to work out all things for his good. When we hear stories about the unfair treatment of other humans, we ask ourselves questions like this. Is God really working all things together for good? What purpose is this kind of action? Or we might ask, what good is God doing through these kinds of circumstances? How about you, friend? Are you doubting the security of your eternal soul? Are you struggling to understand what good God is doing in your life? The Apostle Paul addressed that in his letter to the church that was located and gathering in Rome. Would you please turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Romans, and we will be in Romans chapter 8. If you're using the pew copy of the Bible, it's page 796. Romans was a letter that was written, that God wrote through the Apostle Paul to unfold the undeserved, unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. The section that we are in is, is in the... Is, is considering the assurance that the gospel provides to God's children. We've been taking quite a bit of time to work through Romans chapter 8. It's a beautiful chapter. I've encouraged you and I encourage you again. If you would, would, would want to commit one chapter of Romans to your, to your heart and to your mind's memory, Romans chapter 8 would be a great option for you. We'll take a, a quicker pace probably when we get, when we get to chapter 9. But here in Romans chapter 8, the end is it's concluding, we're, we're considering again the, the assurance, the security that we're able to have as followers of Christ. 
So to those of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, God is kind not just to save us from the penalty of our sin, the penalty that we are deserving of, but in addition to that, He offers full assurance, full security that we are His children. Now, if you are not yet a brother or sister in Christ, if you're not yet haven't yet repented of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You don't have that assurance. You don't have that security of what will happen to you after you die in this life. I invite you this morning, if that is your situation, to listen carefully to the good news and to the invitation that God has offered to, to you to come unto Him. Would you please follow along as I read from God's Word from Romans chapter 8. We begin again at verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, for they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are in, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, for if you live after the flesh, you will die, but if through the spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the, the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but, be, be, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a, for what a man seeth, why doth he get hope for? 
But if we hope for what we see not, then do we wait with patience for it. Likewise, the Spirit helps our infirmities, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Paul has made it clear that Christians will experience suffering as we travel our earthly journey. But he has also presented to us a series of assurances to help us, to encourage us along the journey through those sufferings. Paul has reminded us that groaning precedes glory. So he has told us that there is a future glory that awaits those who are the children of God. So we need to keep trusting. There's a better day yet ahead. Paul has reminded us of the internal work of the Holy Spirit, that the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit himself, is within us, and that we, don't, that we often don't even know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself prays for us. And not only does the Spirit pray for us, he does so in exact accordance with God's, the Father's, perfect holy will for us. And then Paul also reminds us that there's an unbreakable promise that God is is overseeing, he's orchestrating all the things of our life for our good. And that is the question that we consider this morning. What is that good? The Bible teaches that everyone who is genuinely saved is kept saved, is eternally saved. Here's how the Harvest Bible Church doctrinal statement reads. We believe that all of the redeemed, once saved, are kept by God's power and are thus secure in Christ forever. It is the privilege of the saved to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation through the testimony of God's word. The passage before us might be the clearest teaching on the doctrine of eternal security. It might be the clearest passage in all of the scripture that just brings home for us that once we are saved, that once someone is genuinely in Christ, there is nothing that can change that. They have eternal security in Jesus. A Christian's salvation is secured by God alone. And that is precisely why we cannot be any more secure than we already are if we are God's children. Do you know that security? Paul begins by giving to us the purpose of our secure redemption. Again, verse number 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, and here it is, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So one of the first purposes of our secure redemption is that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
the word for there at the beginning of verse 29, it's, it's an important word for us because it's, it's, it's reflecting back. It's giving us purpose to what happened in verse number 28. So verse 28 says, we know that all things work together for good. Well, what is that good? Because it's happening to those who love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Here it is, for them who did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. It's giving us the purpose for God working all things for our good. Well, what is our good? Uh, is our good to be financially successful in this life? Is our good that we not be stressed out in this life? Is our good that we have the family structure that we want, to a spouse and this many kids or this many grandkids? You see, we, we think we know what is good, right? We think we know that our life should unfold in such and such a way. And we even Christianize our thoughts. Like, we, we say stuff like, well, I can put up with X, Y, and Z in this life because I know that God is going to do this for me. But God may not do X, Y, and Z for you in this life. And if God doesn't do X, Y, or Z for you in this life, that in no way cancels out his promise to bring about all things for your good. So what is your good? What is he providentially working all things for? Firstly, he is he's conforming you to the image of Christ. Sin not only left us alienated from God, broken communication, a barrier between us and God, sin has also hurt us. We are totally depraved, as we say. Sin has has hit all of, all of each of us, if we could say it that way. Our selfishness, our pride, our demanding spirits, our passive-aggressive, critical spirits, and our other besetting sins show us that we indeed are not fully like Christ yet. Right? You experienced that this past week. You messed up somehow. You fell off the path somehow. You sinned. Astoundingly, God is, is not content with only providing reconciliation between us and himself, if that, as if that weren't enough. But what God does is he goes beyond that. He, he makes us, he conforms us to the image of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Conforming. I think of Play-Doh when I think of conforming, right? You know you like to play with that stuff too. And, and it, you, can, you can put it into different shapes and you can smash it through that little lever thing and it pops out of the spaghetti or whatever, however it works. And you, you form it. God is conforming his children to look like his son. What does conforming look like? It, it looks like moving toward perfection or toward righteousness. God is creating an eternally Christ-like race of people that are made up of all earthly ethnicities. Being made like Christ includes our, our physical aspect too. One day we'll receive new bodies. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will, what, what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Or 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. But certainly it happens spiritually also. We don't become God. We become like God. We experience degrees of righteousness 
that are fully evident in Jesus Christ. One of the purposes of our secure redemption is for God to conform His children to the image of His Son. That means that character, our character, will be transformed. Salvation will result in us being more loving. That we will be people of integrity, more truth in our life, more kindness, more joy, more noble. It means that we will love those who are different than we are. It means that we will have integrity in our workplace, that we will have peace in our hearts, that we will be disciplined at the dinner table, that we will be guarded with our speech. Conforming doesn't happen all at once, does it? We aren't conformed to the image of Christ all at once. We will be glorified one day. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, but we are being made. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. So parents, remember, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Your kids aren't going to trust Jesus and then suddenly be just like Jesus. It doesn't happen that way when they're 5. It doesn't happen when they're that way at 15. I've heard it doesn't happen that way when they're 25, 35, or 45 either. Until then, we are being incrementally challenged and changed into the image of Christ. So remember this truth. Remember this truth with hope. Remember this truth with hope when you mess up this coming week. Remember this truth with thanksgiving as you come to the table. You are being conformed to the image of Christ. Christian, the very, it's, uh, Paul tells us in verse number 20, that all things are working together for good. All things are working together for the best, right? We're not just, things aren't just going to be okay in this life and we're going to have circumstances that we enjoy. We are being made like Jesus. That's the best. We're being made like God's son. So we, as we think about it, as we think about our life and how things are unfolding here on this earth, the best thing that can happen to you is not just to have good health on this life, in this life, or to have, have your grandkids stay in Lancaster County, or to have a financial aspect that you want to have in your, in, your, your, in your nest egg or whatever. The best thing is to be made like Jesus. And that's what God is doing. That's one of the purposes of our secure redemption. Some stuff happened this week, right? After I preached last Lord's Day that all things are working together for good, a bunch of people had a, got a stomach bug. One of them was about to give birth. There were all kinds of ways that we yielded to sinful temptations this week. Someone had their eye removed. A war started this week. In all of these things, God is accomplishing His purpose to conform His children into the image of His Son. Christian, you get to be like Jesus. Rejoice in that. Remember it with hope as you face sin. Remember it with thanksgiving as you keep trusting. So the purpose of our secure redemption is, is that we will be conformed to Christ. But even secondly, there is a, is, there's a, even a greater purpose. And Paul says in verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, it's referring to Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And this is the chief reason that God is redeeming sinners. It's to glorify his own son, Jesus. Isn't that what we read of when Paul writes to the church at Philippi in chapter 2 of Philippians? Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, Jesus, has given him, Jesus, a name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Jesus 
is made the firstborn among many brethren. We read of that in, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, should, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers and sisters in Christ. God is doing the best thing for us in, in our secure redemption by making us like his son, Jesus. But he's also doing something even greater. He's making the light shine brighter on Jesus. He's exalting his son. As we read in Colossians, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And that in everything, he might be preeminence. In the Jewish culture, the firstborn male was preeminence. In other words, he had special privileges. He had special uh, status in the family. There's special rights and opportunities that the firstborn that were reserved for the firstborn son. Paul explains that the primary reason that God redeemed sinners is so that his son may be preeminent among a great host of people. That's an astounding theological truth. We are saved for Christ's sake. We have been pulled from the depths of, of doom so that Christ could be made more of, so that he could be the firstborn among many brethren. We are gifts from God the Father to God the Son. So God is in the process of, of making uh, a righteous humanity for which his Son will, will rule over. That was the original plan in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? God created the human race. We ruled. We had dominion over things. Things were going well, but then we sinned. We rebelled against God. God is, is recreating. He is recreating a humanity that will end with, with a righteous people worshiping his son for all of eternity. We get to be siblings of Jesus. But Jesus is the firstborn. We will spend all of eternity worshiping Jesus. The text says he will bring many sons to glory. There will be Americans. There will be Israelites. There will be South Africans. There will be Ukrainians. There will be people from every tribe and nation that God has redeemed in order to make Jesus the firstborn among many brethren. God's purpose in securing our redemption is both to conform us to the image of his son Jesus and to make a way for Christ to be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul gives to us God's purpose in our secure redemption. But as we go on, as we see through verses 29 and 30, Paul also describes to us the process of our secure redemption. This is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justified, glorified. Brothers and sisters, as you consider each of these links in the unbreakable chain, 
Let it cause worship to swell up within your own hearts as it points to the actions that God has taken for, to secure your eternal soul. When Brother Stauffer read from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, he, he, he noted for us that God was taking action. The same is true as we read each of these, of each of these links in the unbroken, unbreakable chain, is that God has taken action. Verse 29 says, and, uh, For whom he did foreknow, this word for, for know, that he, he foreknew us, this means that God set his love on us. I want to encourage you, don't get easy, uneasy when you read this text. Don't get nervous when you read this passage. Some Christians almost get anxious when they read about God's redemptive plan that it includes his foreknowledge and it includes predestination. There's nothing to be anxious about. It's God's plan. It's got to be the perfect plan. So God's redemptive plan can handle all of the questions that arise. And while you and I may not fully comprehend all of God's redemptive plan, we can still rest assured in it because it's God's plan. Paul wants us to understand that our salvation was initiated by God. It wasn't initiated by us. We must repent of our sin to be saved. We must trust in the Lord and, and, and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And repentance is our first step in redemption, but it is not the first step in redemption. Salvation is initiated by God, not by us. Paul tells us that God foreknew us. Well, what does that mean? It's obvious that God knows the future. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything about the past. He knows everything about what's happening right now in all of your minds and in all of the minds of every human being. And he knows everything that's going to happen in the future. God is omniscient. So he knows the future. But if Paul is saying that God simply knew who everyone in the future is, by name, he knows every person who will ever be born, then Paul would be arguing that everyone would be saved. Now we know that can't be true, um, because Matthew 7.23 tells us, that I will declare unto some of them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Rather, for new, this word foreknowledge, means that God sets his love on someone. Paul doesn't say that God knew something about us. He says he knows us. The word know in the scriptures means more than just head knowledge. God knows us. It doesn't follow reasoning to say that God looked down the annals of time to see who would, who would choose him and then he foreknew those who would choose him. That takes salvation out of God's hands. That makes salvation a matter of works, not grace. The Bible teaches us that none of us naturally seek after God. So if he was going to look down through time and see who would choose him, none of us would have chosen him. That's what Romans tells us. This leaves us with some unanswerable questions, doesn't it? Why did God create unbelievers who would never be saved? Why doesn't he just create believers? Why didn't he just create believers? Friends, no matter how mature we become in this life, there are some questions that we're not going to have answers to with our finite minds. And that's okay. Because we are finite and God is not. It's God's plan. So foreknowledge isn't talking about God's omniscience. It's talking about what he ordained to happen. It's talking about God, before time began, settled his love on people. 
God, if you are in Christ, God settled his love on you before time began. God has loved you before time began. Let that sink in this week. Let that shape how you interact with those people that you love the most. Let that shape how you interact with your coworkers and the decisions that you make this week. God, the one true God, before time began, settled his love on you. That's what it means that he foreknew you. The second link in the chain says, For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate. This means exactly what the English is telling us. He determined a, a destination. A couple of months ago, Tara and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, and we decided we were going to go on a trip. And we were going to just break the mold this time and go somewhere wild and crazy and far away. And So Quarryville's looking good. Sometimes Lancaster's people tell me that kind of stuff, like, we're not from around here, we're from Quarryville. And I'm like, oh, nothing against Quarryville. I know those are good people. We haven't gone on our trip yet, but we're determining, we're, we're determining a destination of where we're going to go. God planned a destination for those that he settled his love on. He planned ahead of time. Predestined means to plan out to a point to determine beforehand. God chose the destiny of every person who would trust in him. Just like God chose, as we read, in, he predestined as we read in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Nobody could have crucified Jesus unless it was in God's predetermined plan. God sets a destination for those that he has set his love on. He does this for his own good pleasure, for his own good reasons. He tells us later, we're going to come to this uh, in the next chapter, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He chose Israel based on nothing that we can see, nothing that Israel could see. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it was not because uh, you are more in number than any of the people that the Lord has set his love on you and has chosen you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We are not Christians, first of all, because of what we have decided. We are Christians because of what, of God, because of what God has decided. We love him because he first loved us. Christian, God has a destination for you. And this gives you hope. This gives you all the hope that you need as you face all that is going on in this life. It's already set in stone. The payment has been made. Jesus paid it all. He's going to be there to greet you in that final destination. The next link in the chain is that he, he has called us. Again, it's the work of God. This is talking about the inward call. 2 Timothy 1, God saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's an, an, an internal illumination. If I can reverently say it this way, it's when God turns the light bulb on in our hearts and he, he warms us to the good news of the gospel. 
The outward call is important. You hear the outward call here at church all the time. Remember, uh, we'll come to it in Romans chapter 10, that without a preacher, how can they, how can they believe without someone going and, and preaching and, and blessed are those, the feet of those who carry the good news? The outward call is important, but the inward call is from God. God often uses the outward call to, to give an inward call. God calls you to repentance and faith. God does an individual internal work to draw you to himself. So I, I pause here to issue the invitation to you. If you have not called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, do so today. God invites you to be a, to be a part of his family. And if you have questions about what it means to be, a, to be born again, as we sang this morning, uh, I'm born again, God's own chosen child of mercy. If you don't understand what that means, talk with us after the service. We'll show you what God means when he says someone is born again, when he gives someone that internal call. Now, we need to give a very specific and clear explanation at this point. God gives that internal call. He sets his love on people, and he, and he pre-plans, he appoints a destination for those that he, he has set his love on. But hear this very clearly. The Bible never teaches that God chose unbelievers for condemnation. That may seem impossible as you're trying to connect all the dots in your own mind. If God chose unbelievers for condemnation, he would be going against what, what, what the rest of the, the scriptures teach. And God cannot do that. It's not only seemingly impossible. This, this truth, this reality that God did not choose people to go to hell is hard for us to make the connections, right? But there are other truths in scriptures that are hard for us to understand. Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody? It's difficult, right? We don't fully understand all of the, the facets of the Trinity. God has set his love on people for his own good pleasure. And he has determined the location of their destination. He has called them. And those are the people that we see that he has also justified. God is working out his plan in time. At a point, he declared Christians to be righteous. We've already spent much time in our series thinking about what it means to be justified by faith. We understand that justification is a legal term, that God declares us to be righteous. Friend, this morning, if you are in Christ, be reminded that it is not a provision to, that, that being justified by faith is not a provision just to live with license that we can, oh, I'm justified and declared righteous, I can live however I want. Rather, it's a motivation to live towards holiness. And then we come to the last link in the chain, and we're given the promise that we will be glorified. It means to have all sin eradicated. And to be made perfect in body and in soul. Hallelujah. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Second Corinthians chapter 4 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God finishes the redemptive plan for us in eternity. That's still yet to happen. None of us have been fully, none of us have been glorified yet. We're still struggling with sin. But did you notice that 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul was already talking about it in the past tense? That's going to happen. To them, he also glorified past tense. So how do we respond to this? You say, Pastor Walters, how do we respond to all of this, this planning that God has done, that he has set his love on us, and that, and that he has called us, and he's justified us, and he's going to glorify us? Well, I can tell you one response that you shouldn't make. It would be a, an unbiblical response to say, well, God has already chosen to, to set his love on people. 
I don't have to, to share the good news. I don't have to, to evangelize others. My friends, that is an unbiblical response to these glorious truths in Romans 8, 29, and 30. God tells us in other places that our work is in the redemptive plan is to go make disciples, to go liberally throw out gospel seed all over the place. So go to your neighbor, go to your family, go to your co-workers, go to the nations, Jesus tells us, with the gospel message. God's work in this is described in Romans 8, 29, and 30. This is his action, and that doesn't contradict in any way the responsibility that he has given to us. So who are you evangelizing? Who are you telling about the good news that God has sent his one and only son, Jesus, to the earth? The golden chain is unbreakable. In other words, the same people that he foreknows, he glorifies. It's not just that some of them that he foreknew will be glorified. If A equals B and B equals C and C equals D and D equals E, then A equals E. Sorry, I did that backwards for your viewing. If he, if he foreknows somebody, those same people, that same group, will be glorified. Friend, in order for someone to lose their salvation, God would have to fail in his purpose. And God cannot fail. God hasn't left the, the composition of, of Christ's family in the hands of fickle human beings. Instead, he has predestined his children to be glorified. And that's precisely why all things will work together for the good of the called. And Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see why your salvation is secure with God? Who foreknew us? God. Who predestined us? God. Who has called us? God. Who has justified us? God. Who will glorify us? God. Therefore, God is the one who secures a person's salvation. God alone secures our redemption. God alone, for his own good pleasure, redeems people for his glory. There are some things that we don't fully understand, and that's okay. There's a gospel song that, that brings a lot of these thoughts together, and the chorus comes from 2 Timothy. From, from 2 Timothy. But the, the, the couple stanzas go like this. I know not... Why God's wondrous grace to me he's, he has made known. Nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart. Nor how believing in his word brought peace within my heart. And here's the part from 2 Timothy. But I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Brothers and sisters, your redemption is secure. It's not secured by something that you can do, something that you have done. Your redemption, your eternal security is found in the action of Almighty God. So worship Him because of it. Trust Him because of it. Rest in Him because of it. Father, we thank You.